1: Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to The Future of Entrepreneurship, of Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Now and Then. I'm Heather Cox
0: Richardson. And I'm Joanne Freeman. This week... Heather you and I came together and decided that in a word what we really wanted to talk about was commissions. And I think there was a point at which you and I both came up with a similar question which was we both noticed that in the last I don't know week to 10 days suddenly political commentators and pundits and journalists and op-ed writers and and even political scientists and a petition in one way or another a whole bunch of people had stepped forward and said, wow, democracy is really in danger. And you and I have been for a very long time saying that all over the place, online, to each other. So it's striking, I think, and I think you and I both had the same response. Why now? Like, Why suddenly has everyone joined and and, and basically jumped on this train? And we both came up with a, a simple answer, and I guess we're going to complicate that, As we talk today, but the the simple answer was perhaps this has something to do with the fact that on May 28th, Senate Republicans blocked the creation of an independent commission to investigate the January 6th attack on Congress. That maybe that decision to not have that investigation drove people to have a sense of urgency that they didn't have before.
2: Well, it certainly seemed to be the case that that was a turning point for a lot of people who had tried to look away before that and say, oh, you know, really, we're going to go ahead and figure out some way to make sure another attack on our democracy doesn't happen. But when the Senate Republicans went ahead and filibustered for the first time this year that bipartisan bill that came out of the House of Representatives to establish an independent bipartisan commission— I think it really was a wake-up call for a lot of people. If you remember, what happened that day was so extraordinary. Even Republicans, even ones who were thought of as being really partisan, people like Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, for example, were talking about how much we needed a commission to figure out what on earth had happened that day.
0: We need a 9-11 commission to find out what happened to make sure it never happens again. And I want to make sure that uh, the capital footprint uh, can be better defended next time. It was
2: really clear to a lot of people that there was this real disconnect between what was supposed to be happening in, de- in American democracy and what had happened that day. So there was a sense, even among them, that they needed to look into this. Of course, at the same time, they were using that in part to justify voting against convicting Donald Trump for incitement of insurrection in his second impeachment trial. So it's partly an excuse. But they hinge on that American sense of, gee, something's not right here, and we have to figure out why.
0: Right. Right. So in essence, it puts a spotlight on the political process, on the mechanics of politics at a moment when people know that something wrong and then the question becomes, what's going to happen now? How is that process going to work? And well, depending on who you are, it either works really well or doesn't work at all.
2: And actually, when you think about it, don't you really want to know how that happened? I mean, we're sort of talking about it intellectually, but as historians, like, like, don't you I, I want to look at all the transcripts. I want to look at all the phone calls. Oh, Heather. I want to look at, I mean, <laughs> yes. Like, that's my happy place. And people are saying, people are saying, oh, you know, we don't, you know, we know, we can see the videos.
0: So I'm like, no, you don't. No. You don't know what happened no. on those that's phone true. calls. You don't know who called home. That's totally you know? true. You don't
2: know who
0: was in the rooms. Well, we we have a, a sense, which is interesting. I hadn't thought about it this way before. We have a sense of what evidence can really be, right? Because we we as historians, <laughs> we're knee deep in evidence all the time. And you're right, as historians, we want to really sort of wallow in it and read it and see the wording and see the phrasing and get a sense of the mental landscape and the dynamics going on between people, which is the sort of thing you can only get with that kind of evidence.
2: In the physical landscape, I happened to be looking through my diary this week and looked at the fact that there was a, a meeting in Trump Tower on either December 18th or December 19th with a whole bunch of people at it. Well, of course, when I wrote that on December 18th or 19th, whenever it was, I just noted that it was a meeting. Now mm-hmm. I'm thinking, hmm, were they talking about what they were going to have for dinner? I think not. Probably not. <laughs> So, anyway, back in the present, one of the complaints uh, fr- coming from Republicans is that any commission looking into what happened that day is going to be partisan. So, we actually <laughs> sat down and we tried to, we were like, well, you know, kind of aren't all hearings partisan? So, we actually sat down and took it from the other direction and said, let's come up with a <laughs> list of hearings that were not partisan. And I still have that list. And, we, you know, finally we found one. I'm like, there we go. We've got one. It wasn't partisan, <laughs> we got and one. we looked it up. <laughs> and the very, the very first line I saw on Wikipedia was, this was a highly contentious partisan commission. <laughs> it's like, we quit. Every, every hearing is going to be partisan.
0: But here's the thing. Here's the thing that I love about us, right, is that we think of the topic, we're like, oh, commissions. We want to talk about commissions. And then we're like, okay, we think they're partisan. Are they? And then we like— <laughs> jump in and investigate and shoot these texts and emails back and forth, is that we're so open-minded to try and figure this out. I mean, I guess that's part of what makes it fun.
2: Well, but what really came down to, though, once we had done that, is sitting there and figuring out, then, if they're partisan, if they're all partisan, why do they matter? Why do we need them? We've got plenty of other partisan things around, so why does it matter? And I sent Joanne a great text where I said, Joanne, what we really need to talk about is why this matters.
0: Your turn. (laughs) <laughs> first thing in the morning i i was like st- admittedly still in bed pick up my phone and heather's like okay why do commissions matter <laughs> go joanne but we came up with a list of reasons right I, I responded and i had a list of reasons that i thought you know i don't know five or six things that i thought were actually important about commissions that were not necessarily about Creating legislation on the basis of a commission, but were varied and and kind of wide ranging, and in some ways more about sentiment or feelings about the government and about the nation than they were necessarily about a, a concrete outcome.
2: And what I what we really came down to, and what I loved about that, was that what it seemed to me is that a hearing or a commission happens at a time when a number of people believe that there is an imbalance in the American government, that one side or another is trying to take advantage, and they want They want that to be looked at. But crucially, Joanne pointed out that when, in fact, that happens and when two parties or two different groups or fear of an outside influence become serious enough that the government wants to take a look at it, that people want the government to take a look at it, what they do is they go to the nation's highest tribunal, the public. And that, I think, is where
0: we are right now with this January 6th commission. You and I are going to be sort of banging up against this as we talk today, but— That gets at one of the reasons why, and we'll see how we we veer back around to this at the very end of our conversation, but one of the reasons why these kinds of commissions can be really important, because they are opening something to the public and declaring in front of the public and enabling them to register their own response among themselves, so potentially they have a wide uh, impact, to declare an act wrong. It's a moment where people are saying, this thing happened. And this thing seems unacceptable. So let's publicly air it and look at it and see what it looks like. And in so doing, declare that it seemingly crossed a line. Now, the commission can decide it didn't happen. But even if it does that, still standing up and saying this thing that happened, even though it didn't happen the way we thought it did, that thing is not acceptable. And as vague and abstract as that sounds... I think that's really important. And I think we see that every day when something, for example, like the January 6th event happens and you see people murmuring that it might happen again. Well, we haven't really responded as a nation to what we think of that in an official kind of a way. And that's what the political process is about. And that's part of what commissions can do and
2: we have not yet said it isn't okay which is one of the reasons people are worried that it might happen again there has not been a public hearing if you will a public airing of whether or not the events that happened on January 6 were okay in a dem- in a democracy and, and, and a lot of us think they weren't okay but i want to throw in here before we get into the different ways to look at commissions and times at which they have been very valuable in trying to figure out how in fact democracy works i want to throw out that there are a lot of commissions there that have been held or hearings that have been held at times when people People thought that there was the wrong sort of pressure in the American government. And none of us really remember those. Even if they were a really big deal at the time, like they really monopolized the public conversation, they have faded into obscurity because at the end of the day, it turned out they proved that, or at least they suggested that there really wasn't a terrible imbalance that had to be adjusted in American democracy. And one of my favorites of that is in the 1950s, there was a a really major hearing called the, or series of hearings called the Kefauver hearings, uh, named after Senator Estes Kefauver of Tennessee. He was a Democrat in which he organized hearings to investigate the influence of the mob in America and in American business and by extension into the American government. And this was a huge deal. Uh, The committee met in 14 different cities. It interviewed 600 different witnesses. There were um, an estimated 30 million people watching the testimony in Congress. If you go to the Mob Museum in Las Vegas, they actually, it's actually in the building in one of the courtrooms where these hearings were held and they still have bulletproof glass up in front of where the judge sat because they were so concerned that people were gonna get shot up. Although at the end of the day, you know, in the 1970s, 1970, I guess, we did get the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO, to try and get the big fish who are ordering the little fish around to commit crimes in the mob. At the end of the day, people were like, nah, it turns out the mob wasn't as big a deal in the government as we thought it was. And most people nowadays have never even heard of the Kefauver hearings, even though they were
0: the set of hearings in the 1950s. I really wonder if there are two levels of thinking about what commissions do. And one of them is immediate, in the moment. Is this thing right or wrong? And another one has more longstanding implications. And what you just said was, some of these were a big deal and they happened and now we don't remember them. They happened because there was a moment that seemed like it needed investigating. So, you know, it could be that the more we think about this, the more it will be that Regardless of what they find or if they find anything, there's an immediacy in a moment of crisis that these commissions have that may or may not have a long-standing legacy in American memory, but that doesn't mean that they don't matter. I think that looking at past commissions can show you a lot of the things that can happen from these commissions, outcomes of awareness, if not legislative outcomes, or electoral outcomes even, that have a big influence. Well, after going
2: through all of our texts and all the different commissions that we came up with, we finally centered on three that seemed to represent exactly the sorts of important issues we're thinking about. Not the commissions that didn't end up mattering. And by the way, in the 19th century, it was a really big deal. Anytime anybody was mad about anything, they said, let's have a hearing. And they would have a hearing, and then nobody would ever read about it. And these are gold mines for historians because they're verbatim testimony about any number of things. The purchase of guns in 1890 in Nebraska, for example, I am not kidding. And yet there are some that matter a lot. So the first one we picked out was an investigation into what happened in May of 1856. Take it away, Joanne Freeman.
0: (laughs) When people think about violence in Congress, this is the one thing normally that they think about, and that is the very famous caning of Massachusetts abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner in the Senate. So Sumner is at his desk and he's signing copies of – A speech that he just gave that offended many Southerners, including the man who ultimately canes him, Preston Brooks, uh, signing them so that they can ultimately be sent out to constituents and a variety of other people. Now, Sumner had given a really deliberately aggressive speech on May 19th and 20th of 1856. In print, it ended up being about 112 pages, which tells you that was quite a speech. And he deliberately wanted to confront what he called the slave oligarchy. The issue at play at that moment was was the state of Kansas and whether Kansas was going to be a free state or a slave state. And there was violence in Kansas as people were literally fighting over what kind of a state it would be, which constitution would be accepted as the legal constitution of Kansas. Would it be a free constitution? Would it be one that allowed slavery? It was vital, huge. It's at a moment when the slavery debate is really picking up and Sumner, picks this moment to give a speech that he titled The Crime Against Kansas. I'm sorry. I'm laughing
2: here at you saying it's an aggressive speech.
0: It is so <laughs> incendiary. He
2: accuses a fellow senator of rape on the floor of the Senate. Well, right. I, I
0: literally, the next word in my notes here is rape. Okay. <laughs> because We're in the same zone. Such,
2: it is such an incendiary speech that I, I won't teach it,
0: actually. Right. No, it's, it's, it's really extreme. And he does indeed talk about, you know, literally the rape of Kansas by pro-slavery forces. He attacks a number of senators specifically by name using that kind of sexualized rhetoric. One of them being Andrew Butler of South Carolina talks about plantation manners, talks about how Southerners routinely trample the rules of Congress underfoot. Well, Preston Brooks is a relative of Senator Andrew Butler. And Preston Brooks read what Sumner had said in the newspaper to make sure that it was as offensive as he thought it was, and then came into the Senate on May 22nd and essentially said, this is a bad paraphrase, Senator Sumner, you've insulted my kinsmen and you've insulted my state and you've insulted my region and I now must revenge them. Some Something along those lines. You're
2: making this sound so civilized.
0: I know, it's really not civilized. He symbolized. came
2: up the guy and he beat the crap out of well, him. I'm well, I'm getting to the, the crap surprise. beating.
0: <laughs> Give me a chance to get to the crap beating. He did say that before the crap beating. He did. He, he stood in front of him and made this formal declaration. He got, he got know, to know that from a hearing? <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> as a matter of fact. Um, I was going to say at the outcome, thank you for reminding me, a great example of the amazing value of these committee reports from hearings is the Sumner committee report. It's huge. And it includes eyewitness testimony from people who saw what happened as to exactly what they saw and exactly what they heard. And testimony that should be, you know, used a lot more often. So yes, that is indeed the testimony. And that's very formal honor stuff. You're talking to an honor scholar. So at any rate, he makes this formal pronouncement and then he beats the crap out of Charles Sumner, um, really violently beating him with his cane over the head until Sumner, who can't get away quickly enough because the desks in the Senate were bolted to the floor, he ultimately wrenches his desk from the floor and collapses in a heap, bleeding. And Brooks cane at some point, Breaks and he's taken away, and Sumner is carried away. Really, really obviously dramatic incident. So, then of course, the question is what do we do about that? Uh, Or should something be done about that? It's not the first time there was violence in Congress, but it's a really symbolic, extreme example. So, the day after the attack, Senator William Seward, who's a, a New York Republican, so an anti slavery Republican, called for an investigation, and the House passed a resolution to appoint a committee to look into what would be the appropriate punishment for Brooks' actions. Ultimately, the committee was divided and um, Southerners did not really think it was the Congress's place to punish, although as a whole, the majority of this committee thought that, um, and this is their language, the assault was a most flagrant violation, not only of the privileges of the Senate and of the House and the personal rights and privileges of the senator, but of the rights of his constituents and of our character as a nation. So it suggests that expulsion for Brooks would be a fine thing. And then comes debate of Brooks' expulsion in the House. Ultimately, it does not garner the required two-thirds majority to remove Brooks. All Southern congressmen except one voted for Brooks to stay on. And Brooks feels dishonored by the debate. Ultimately, he resigns, goes home, and is immediately Re-elected back into Congress. Now, that leads to the question, one of the ones that we're dealing with today, which is what's the impact of these hearings and commissions and moments in which extreme crises are aired in front of the public? In this case, the event itself and the debate over it increased polarization, intensified polarization. People in the North thought that the North itself was being beaten to the ground, then the New York Times, they stated, the blow struck at Sumner takes effect upon freedom of speech in that spot, Congress, where without freedom of speech, there can be no freedom of any kind. It struck at the heart of the North. Meanwhile, Southerners thought this was a fine, wonderful thing that finally someone from the South had stood up and silenced these arrogant, aggressive, nasty Northerners, these crazed, the, the word they like to use was fanatical abolitionists, who were out to suppress and silence and insult the South, Preston Brooks was sent canes, celebratory canes, for what he had done. People began talking about having Southerners, quote, summarize other Northerners and abolitionists who got in the way. So there's this hearing, in the end, they decide that they won't act and expel Brooks. He is reelected, although he dies soon after, actually, from a throat infection, which many considered providential. So what what is the impact of this? Well, in this case, it was important to do something. It was such an extreme act. It needed to be discussed. It needed to be aired. It needed to be, as we've said before, highlighted as a line-crossing moment in many ways. But at that moment in time, given where politics was, it didn't Solve really any problems. It just, if anything, intensified polarization. But equally important, it changed how people understood Congress and what they expected of their congressmen. In the North, the Northerners began to elect members of Congress that were a little bit more willing to fight and defend themselves. And it really helped the Republican Party. They were a brand new party. And in the next presidential election, they actually won 33.1 percent of the electoral vote. So it had an impact on the North. It had an impact on the Republican Party. And it had an impact on the nation, despite the fact that ultimately the committee and the hearing didn't act.
1: (music) You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the PropG podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work.
2: discussing the attack on Charles Sumner by Preston Brooks is whether or not it was okay for a congressman to try and kill another congressman on the floor of the Senate. I hope that now we have an answer to that, but it's really a question now. Is it okay to try and silence your opponents in a democracy by using physical harm against them. And the, the attack on Sumner was a really profound moment in which people said, nah, it's probably not okay to try and kill a senator on the floor of the Senate. And that question ties really nicely into the one of the next hearings we picked, and that was the KKK hearings that were held after the American Civil War in 1871. And what happens there is that after the war, with the expansion of a political voice to African-Americans in the South after 1867, when Congress says, well, yeah, we need new state constitutions here in the South, and under the Military Reconstruction Act of 67, they say for the first time in American history, the delegates to those constitutional conventions are going to be voted for by white men, but also by Black men. So African Americans get a voice in the American South in the political body in 1867. And when that happens and the new state constitutional conventions come together and they write really very reasonable constitutions, white supremacists in the South who are Democrats take a look at the fact that these constitutions might actually get ratified and they begin to try and terrorize Republicans who are the African-Americans and their white allies in the South after the Civil War. They start to try and terrorize them. And they do that by dressing up as the ghosts of dead Confederates, and in order to do that, they wear these stupid outfits made of sheets, and that's actually how we get KKK members dressing in sheets. Uh, their faces are covered so that I they didn't shouldn't know
0: that before this. I have to
1: say that
2: that I don't know if that <laughs> what that you know means. why I know that <laughs> uh, you, you know, know why that? I know that is uh, my advisor was Professor Donald David Donald, oh. and um, he always told that story, and it's the
0: first time it ever made sense to me either. It's like
2: how do you how do you wear those stupid A jeans? wonderful
0: scholar of the nineteenth century and nineteenth century politics and political culture?
2: The idea behind the the kkk was to go ahead and to terrorize african American voters and white republican voters from ratifying those new state constitutions they don't manage to succeed the State constitutions do get ratified in 1868, and the southern states come back into the Union, first under an omnibus bill in that year, and then, of course, uh, Georgia gets thrown out and comes back in 1870. But the Democrats continue to use the KKK to try and turn the American South into a one-party state. They continue to try and keep Republicans from voting. And it gets so bad after the readmission of the southern states. The United States government needs to go ahead and enforce voting rights for African Americans. And in 1870... Congress under Ulysses Grant gives us the Department of Justice. That's where the Department of Justice comes from and why it is set up in 1870. And then they, they figure out they got to do something about what's happening in the South. So this Congress begins to pass a series of laws that are designed to go ahead and protect the rights of African Americans in the South. And when they do that, Congress goes ahead and tries to get a picture of what's really going on in the South. Because remember, we don't have televisions. We have telegraphs, but the news coming out of the South is written by former Confederates, so it's very difficult to tell what's really going on. So beginning in 1871, Congress begins to hold uh, hearings on what is happening in the South, and it's known as the Joint Select Committee Appointed to Inquire into the Condition of Affairs in the Late Insurrectionary States. And that's the reason we all just abbreviate that as the KKK Hearings. But what happens is the subcommittee goes ahead and it takes testimony from a number of African-Americans in the South, also white observers in the South who've been watching what's been happening with the KKK in the Southern states. And they travel around to figure out what's happening down there. The committee is incredibly productive. It goes ahead and it produces about 13 volumes of information, each one of which is like 700 pages long. And what these do is they give a picture of what life was like in the South, but also a picture of what American democracy should be. Is it okay— for the KKK and the Democrats they support to go around to the homes of Republicans and beat them and whip them and try and kill them to keep them from acting as the representatives for their party. So there's this amazing moment when this man, a guy named Abram Colby, who had been enslaved in Georgia and has been elected to the state legislature in that state, and he testified that in 1869, the KKK came to his house, and as he said— and I quote, they broke my door open, took me out of bed, took me to the woods, and whipped me three hours or more and left me for dead. They said to me, Do you think you will ever vote another damned radical ticket? I said, If there was an election tomorrow, I would vote the radical ticket. They set in and whipped me a thousand licks more with sticks and straps that had buckles on the ends of them. And then the, the question that came back to him is, who were the people who did this to you? And he said, some are first-class men in our town. Hmm. One is a lawyer, one a doctor, and some are farmers. At the end of the day, the reason the KKK hearings were so important is that they opened a window for Northerners who couldn't really see what was going on in the South to what was going on down there, even though at the end of the day, both the Republicans and the Democrats issued separate reports. And those reports are really interesting for the present moment, I think, because— The Republicans on the committee said, we got ourselves a problem here. We don't have a democratic system when, in fact, one party is trying to keep the other party away from the polls by killing them, essentially, or by whipping them or by raping their daughters or doing all of the terrorist acts that the KKK is doing. And the Democrats, on the other hand, said, no, you're making this up. It's not at all as bad as you think it is. In fact, the occasions that are being documented in this testimony are either made up because, as they pointed out, that anybody who was testifying who had to travel to testify in front of the committee was paid $2 a day. um, And that was true if you were African-American or if you were a Euro-American. If you were black or white, you got those, those $2 for the day for travel and for lodging. But they said these are essentially paid witnesses, so they're making up stories to make money, sort of the precursors to today's crisis actors. But they also said, okay, even if we're going to admit there's a few things bad that happened, they were just bad actors. This is not a systemic problem. Which, again, I think is an interesting moment for today in when we talk about the commission to look at January 6th, because you're hearing a lot of that same language. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, what we're looking at is, is it okay for one party to try and keep another party away from the polls. And the Republicans said, if you do this, he said this to the Democrats, if you do this, you're going to end democracy. You're going to end up with a one-party state and that it's going to suppress the, the rights of a number of your citizens. And the Democrats said, no, 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 that's not at all what's going on. And that's not at all what's going to happen. And then, of course, we get the solid South from the 1880s through to the 1960s. So what the Republicans predict
0: is exactly what happened. What's interesting about that, too, you know, so so you've just talked about the threat of one party rule. You've also talked about that particular set of hearings as a kind of line drawing moment about what is or isn't acceptable in democracy, regardless of the outcome. And, of course, you could say both of those things about the Sumner hearings and the Sumner debate as well. Right. In that case, it was the South trying to silence the North and really be the sort of dominant force in politics and silence debate. Of slavery, and again, a commission that, regardless of whether it did or didn't act, and regardless of whether there's agreement or disagreement, still a line drawing. What happened, at least for many of us, is not acceptable in a democracy.
2: So we have the summer hearings, taking a look at whether or not you can beat up. A fellow member of Congress and shut them up. You got the KKK hearings looking at whether or not it's okay for one political party to silence another political party and create a one party state. And then we picked the Army McCarthy hearings because that's a really interesting moment where Americans have to decide if it's okay to control politics by lying. And it comes down to the actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin, a guy named Joe McCarthy, who in 1950 made huge news when he said that he had a list of 205 communists who were working in the State Department. And this was really his way to get a leg up in his election because he wasn't a very well-known senator at the time. And he becomes uh, a man who leads the charge against what he says is communism in the American government and in things like Hollywood and across the country, and really sparks this wave of anti-communism going across the country in the early 1950s. But the trick to McCarthy is he's making it up. You know, he's mm-hmm. acting by innuendo, he's pulling people in front of the cameras, he's accusing people, and at the end of the day, he never produces any evidence, but he keeps the press always on the run by having one accusation after another, one headline-grabbing attack after another. So he finally, he starts out in, the, in going after the State Department in the 1950s, and he brings in more and more groups in America, but finally in 1953, he overreaches by going for the Army because an, an aide of his, a 25-year-old lawyer aide of his named Roy Cohn, that's going to be important in a minute, gets upset because a friend of his, David Shine, is drafted into the army as a private and he wants him to have a commission. So in order to get Shine a commission, McCarthy begins to accuse the army itself of harboring communists. And of course, Dwight Eisenhower is the president and he is uh, sort of fond of the U.S. Army. So this is not something that's going to endear him to the president, but also to members of the Republican Party. They're both Republicans. So in, in the spring of 1954, Congress begins to hold hearings to iron out whether or not the Army has unfairly treated David Shine and harbors communists the way that McCarthy charges, or whether McCarthy and Cohn have been putting undue pressure on the Army to go ahead and get Shine a better deal. And these become known as the Army-McCarthy hearings, and they're enormously important because what happens is people have been reading in the newspapers the headline grabbing accusations by McCarthy that there are communists who are perverting American society and, and the country is sliding into this, uh, totalitarian nightmare and there, and that there's this corruption throughout the, the government. And these headline accusations he would make would later be proven to be nothing, but nobody ever read the corrections on page four. So this was the moment where McCarthy is on television in front of the world acting as he does.
0: And that's um, one of the interesting things about this is that we're suddenly we're in a new moment. We're in a, a more modern moment and a really interesting technological moment, which is that in this case, in addition to newspaper headlines, people can watch these hearings. They can watch what's happening on TV they can sit in their homes, in their living rooms, and watch what's going on. And in a sense, they can see firsthand McCarthy's kind of style of operating, which, if it's abrasive, is being nice about it. One New York Times critic said, One cannot remain indifferent to Joe McCarthy in one's living room. He's an abrasive man. He's recklessly transparent. And another said that because people could see how extreme and over-the-top he was, that seeing him on TV meant, quote, coverage did him in. People started to laugh at him. He became a joke and then a bore. He got tiresome. So what might have worked in headlines when people were at home watching it, so that ultimate tribunal again, the public— The public could see it for themselves and draw their own conclusions.
2: And as many as 80 million people were watching at least some of these hearings. And they heard the testimony where, for example, he would say, I have here a photograph.
0: And then it would turn out that the photograph was doctored. But let me ask you, Heather, when he did that, how did people find out that it was doctored? He would hold it up and he would say, "This I have here a photo." Did they have to be reading the newspaper to find that out, or or how would of that actual knowledge of, the, of quote unquote it, the fake, fake news? Yeah. The opposing
2: counsel, who is a Boston lawyer named Joseph Nye Welsh, was very good about refuting that. He had a very Mm. good team, and he would say, I see that you—and I'm obviously paraphrasing—I see that you have produced this photograph, but here is the original photograph, Mm. and it would be something very different. And the point there was that he exposed McCarthy as a liar. As somebody who was simply being, as you say, a bore, or a, a, you know, trying to dominate a situation by lying, and at the time people were absolutely horrified because things that might have looked reasonable in the newspaper when you read it, and, and often I find this when I read the news, I'll read the account of something by one or another uh, right-wing senators or, or congressmen, and I'll think, well, that sounds really reasonable. And then I'll sit there and actually chase down the facts, and it's like, no, he made all that <laughs> up. It sounded reasonable because he made it up, and that's exactly what McCarthy was doing. And then very famously... All of this comes to a really important head on June 9th when McCarthy, recognizing that he's losing ground, you know, he's been making dirtier and dirtier accusations to try and um, be dominant even as he is losing ground. As a person like that does, as a bully does, they get worse and worse the more they recognize that they're losing ground. And he goes after one of the young men who's on Welsh's team. And Welsh knew that it was coming. In a sense, he set up McCarthy, and McCarthy goes after this young man, and Welsh says to him, you have to imagine this man with his sitting there at the with the microphone in front of him at this low table, and soon he's going to be putting his head in his hands, and he says, Senator, may we not drop this? And then he goes on to say, you know, we knew this. You're just trying to hurt this man. And then he goes on to say, Let us not assassinate this lad further. Senator, look,
0: look, you've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have have you left no sense of decency? Have you left no sense of decency? And by the end of that hearing, not that long after this exchange, the room where this was taking place burst into applause. So even in that one room, the impact of this was really clear. So the Senate goes on to condemn McCarthy. They have
2: censure hearings for him, but they actually condemn him rather than censuring him. While some of his supporters tend to think of that as a victory, he was really done. People had turned against McCarthy. He died three years later from complications relating to alcoholism, and he falls out of the picture. But in that moment, Americans decided that they did not think it was okay to get political advantage by lying. Hmm. But what's interesting about that (laughs) (laughs) minute— You know where I'm going with this. What's interesting about that minute is, of course, Roy Cohn, that man that was the 25-year-old aide to Joe McCarthy, is the man that Donald Trump considered a mentor. So while there was, in fact, a political revulsion at the way McCarthy behaved, it was a strand of political rhetoric that did, in fact, go into a certain wing of the Republican Party and has come to fruition in the present. So that brings us up to the present, Joanne. I mean, what do you think—I know you feel strongly that we need a commission, despite the fact that they don't always produce any
0: immediate results. Why do you think we need one? Well, a bunch of reasons. One of them is sort of along the lines of what we hinted at at the beginning of our conversation today, and that is there needs to be a public moment when just the fact that there is a commission meeting— Declares what happened was beyond the bounds. What happened was unacceptable. What happened was not normal. And having a commission states that pretty clearly. No matter what happens in the commission, no matter what facts come out of it, having that moment where basically Congress says to the country, in one way or another, something strange happened and we have to pause in our normal course of duty. And investigate this because it's not allowable. It's not part of the democratic tradition of how our process should be operating. So let's act. On top of that, I also think that the idea of not allowing or or voting against a commission to happen is kind of a slap at the democratic process as well, because it's saying that this obviously striking event doesn't really deserve to be discussed before the public, which is another way of sort of pushing the public out of the way at a moment when various aspects of the public are being pushed out of the way. So you're right. I do feel really strongly that, that we need it, even for many reasons, but for that reason particularly. What about you? Well, there are complaints
2: that uh, a commission, an independent bipartisan commission, might not in fact get to the root of much simply because if you look at, for example, the 9-11 commission, the end results of that one on which the proposed January 6th independent bipartisan commission was based, that those results were so watered down to make everybody happy that at the end of the day, we really didn't get a sense that there was anything other than a breakdown in communication, you think about what happened on 9-11 and think the conclusion was we needed to communicate better. It seems like it was something that perhaps might have had
0: sharper teeth in it than that. So there's a concern that maybe that isn't good enough. But let me ask you a question. So if 9-11 had happened and there had been no hearing, no investigation, it just happened and then we'd moved along, what would that suggest?
2: it would suggest that it was okay. And actually what's interesting to me about that is 911 is of course investigating something from outside without a suggestion that it's necessarily something with our democracy except perhaps in the fact that our our different branches of the government didn't communicate together as well as they ought to have done. But there is also the the other way to look at it that well you know is the as a number of Republicans are saying we don't really need a commission because we have a joint investigation going on right now between the Senate Homeland Security Committee and the Rules Committee, but the problem with trusting individual Senate or House committees to investigate what happened on January six is that their purview is really small. They have something very specific to look at in this case security, and you could also think about Nancy Pelosi setting up a select committee, but in that case of Of course, the Republicans are going to charge that it is terribly partisan. People have also talked about President Biden setting up an executive committee, but that wouldn't have the subpoena power unless... Congress gave it to them, which is highly unlikely that the Republicans could do that. So one of the things that I think is really important about the idea of having a committee, a specific committee looking at the events of January 6th, is that they can take this broad perspective. Is what happened on January 6th and leading up to it, and perhaps coming out of it, okay for a democracy? Is it okay for our elected officials to undermine the outcome of an election that has been inspected, challenged in court, certified, and counted. And that is, at the end of the day, why this matters, because it's not over. We have never put a period at the end of this to say, yes, this is okay, which I hope a commission wouldn't do, but to say, no, this is not the way a democracy happens. I agree
0: that there has to be a public moment of reckoning regardless of what happens in that moment, it can't be part of some normal committee, like, oh, today in this committee we'll debate this. There has to be a a kind of a line drawing in the sand moment, regardless of what lines do or don't get drawn. There has to be a moment where things stop and some people point to what happened and say, weird, not normalized, not acceptable, anti-democratic. Regardless of what happens with that commission, It's important to have that moment. You could say the same thing about the Mueller investigation and the fact that, you know, some people walked away from that and said, so there was no collusion at all. Right. But there was a moment when we stopped and basically said collusion is bad, collusion would be wrong, and that matters. And I feel the same way about this. I feel that there has to be a public reckoning moment and just as you put it, Heather, as a way of putting a period at the end of the sentence and a way of pulling public attention to the fact that a line was crossed and it shouldn't be crossed again. So I'm going to give the
2: last word here to one of our assistants, Sam Staten, who when we talked about this said, I guess what you're saying is it's important to have a hearing not because of who they are, but because of who we are. Our conversation continues for
0: members of Cafe Insider. Heather and I take you behind the scenes of each episode in a special segment of Now and Then that we call Backstage. So join
2: us backstage and get an inside look at the thoughts we're wrestling with as we prep for our weekly
0: conversations. Head to cafe.com history to join. And for a limited time, get 50% off the annual membership with a special code, history. That's cafe.com slash history. And the discount code is history. That's it for this episode of Now and Then. Your hosts are Joanne Freeman and Heather Cox Richardson. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is David Kurlander. The audio producer is Matthew Billy. The Now and Then theme music was composed by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Adam Waller, David Tatteshawr, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Now and Then is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself.